You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Alright, hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he melts in your mouth, but not in your hands. It's Jeff McLarge Huge. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Not creepy at <laughs> not all. Not creepy at all, right, yes. Uh, this is, is the yeah, this is the week of three fifteen. And anybody that's known me for any length of time. I three fifteen is like been my lucky number, what I call my lucky number, like forever. Right. And that's like into my screen names, like for Instagram and stuff like that. It's like Bill with one L three fifteen. It's all it's everywhere for me three fifteen. Right. Um, see people holding up the signs at sporting events. Bill, I'm sorry. <laughs> Bill three fifteen. Yeah. We should do that. We should like hold up signs at sporting events. Well, when they happen again, I mean, but right. you know, hold the signs. Bill three fifteen, and people are like, what the hell is he talking about? And there's a message like, I'll call you at three fifteen. <laughs> it costs three dollars and fifteen cents for soda at this venue, so yep. it could be tied to no, anything. You, yeah, it used to pop up everywhere. Like uh, homeroom. I mean, you were you were with me, but like homeroom at school for four years was room three fifteen. Yeah, and yep. then my locker number was three fifteen as well. Right, and therefore the little checks to get the tools in and out of the tool crib. Yep, they were number three fifteen. Yeah. Yep. I'm a little kid. I'm superstitious. I'm like, oh, that must be my lucky number. And, you know, here I am all these decades later. It's like, hey, it's my lucky number, 315. <laughs> 315. Well, there we go. It's lucky because it starts us off this week with uh, with March 15th. So we got that going for us. At least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a sign, Jeff. It's a, it's sign. a sign. It's a sign. It's a sign that says Bill, 315. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Being held up in a basketball stadium with nobody in it. <laughs> I have a I have a new number that's like my quote unquote no, not lucky number but just like a number I make reference to now is uh, is twelve twelve. I yeah. was stoned out of my mind on Nyquil one night, right? And then I woke up after what felt like three or four days worth of sleep, but it was only like a like an hour or two. But I woke up and I managed to get like one eye open. I looked at the clock and it said twelve twelve. And in this, like, drunken stupor of a NyQuil coma, I came up with this, like, this brand new mythology all to my own. Yeah. So, you know how, like, at 11-11, you're supposed to make wishes or whatever? Let's, for the sake of argument, say, yes, I do. Oh, you, oh my God. You've never heard of that? <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a superstition. Yeah. If you see 11-11 on a clock, it's like, oh, 11-11, make a wish. So I came up with this thing that, at, like, okay, so you make it a, uh, a wish at 11-11. At 12-12, you can ask the devil for favors. Oh, all right. And then I expanded on the mythology in my head, all in this, like, drunken stupor. Like, you know the movie, well, they remade it with Elizabeth Hurley, but there was an original, too, with uh, Dudley Moore. Oh, Bedazzled. Bedazzled, yeah. yeah. It's also kind of known as the curse of the monkey's paw, 
where if you would ask the devil for a favor, he would give it to you, but there would be this like weird stipulation. You have to be very, very specific. Yes. Yeah, exactly. As Bedazzled makes that clear in the film. Right. And I believe the old story, The Curse of the Monkey's Paw, works the same way. I don't know. You're the literary guy. You would probably know that more than I do. uh, not really, because the monkey's pot doesn't try and give you anything. But the devil is like, but I, you know, hey, we can, we, you don't have to stop wishing. We can keep on going, huh? huh? You can, we can get you what you want. You just have to be very specific. And uh, and in the end, he screws over poor Dudley Moore over and over. That movie's funny as all get out too. It's yeah, super sixties, but it's wicked funny. Oh, it's twelve twelve. <laughs> what's your, what's your pleasure? <laughs> So I didn't wake up this morning thinking that this was going to be the numerology. <laughs> uh, yeah, as well, as things will go, I think yeah. we'll see that there's definitely a pattern. <laughs> yeah. Oh, let's oh. recognize this pattern's everywhere. But before we get the show proper started, of course, I have my uh, award-winning trivia question. 33rd President of the United States, Harry yes. S. Truman. Uh, what did the S stand for? Glad you asked me that question. No, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) It stands for a name that begins with a letter S, which I'll reveal at the end of the show. All right. So here is our show. Do you like it? All right. Here it is. All right. It's the week beginning March the 15th. And even though 315 is like my lucky number, We'll let you go first this week. All right. Well, on on March 15th of 1959, that's already a lot of numbers now that Mm. I think about it. Um, It, This means something. (laughs) This means something. Robert Foster sets a record by staying underwater for how long do you think you can hold your breath for, Bill? Ooh, that's a solid question. Well, I used to be. It's not even trivia. This is just a a question question. Okay. Uh, Oh, I used to be a smoker. I, I, I don't know. Probably not even a minute. Although I do remember when I was a kid, I noticed that if you're laying down, you can hold your breath a lot longer because your lungs aren't as compressed or whatever. But if I'm going to say just regular, hold my breath underwater, I I wouldn't even say a minute. Well, you're obviously not Robert Foster. You've noticed. You stayed underwater for 13 (laughs) minutes and 42 and a half seconds. What? 1959. 13 minutes and 42 and a half seconds. And that record held for 48 years. Yeah, he did it in California. Uh, and then it was it got broken by a, a, a Lithuanian sister and brother act, the Donnie Marie of uh, Lit- of uh, Latvia. <laughs> Donnie Don- Marie of, of Lithu- Lithuania. The Donnie uh, Marie of breath holding, yeah. Yes, um, Arvidas and Diana Gaikunas, who were, uh, I guess, a brother and sister act, and they stayed underwater together. I'm just glad I don't have to write them checks. Holy cow. 15 minutes, <laughs> right? She's a little bit country. He's a little bit... Uh, <laughs> She's a little bit country. He's a little bit... <laughs> <laughs> they stayed underwater together for 15 minutes and 58 seconds. Oh, now, that is sibling rivalry at its best right there. Right. I'm not going up if you're not going up, right? And they're both, I'm sure they're both pointing up like, you can be done anytime now. You can be done. Go on, go on up. You can uh, see them just like flipping each other off, trying to tickle one another. That's definitely. 16 minutes just about, right? You just 60, said? Yeah, 15 minutes and 58 seconds. And now, admittedly, that both, both of these records were done with the help of using pure oxygen and hyperventilating on pure oxygen before holding your breath to flush out all the carbon dioxide and really, really open your lungs uh, up so that it's there's extra extra oxygen in there. You didn't uh, say that at the beginning when you asked me I, the question. Hold on. How, <laughs> how long can I hold my breath with pure oxygen? I'm going to say a minute and 15 seconds. No, three minutes <laughs> and 15 seconds. Yeah. So anyway, 15 minutes and 15 seconds. And that that uh, record was set in 2007. 
the longest a person has held their breath without doing that hyperventilation thing is 11 minutes and 35 seconds by a free, dri- a free diver named uh, Stefan Mifsud, 2009. Don't these people like get like brain damage from not, you know what I mean? Because like, like if your brain goes without oxygen for X amount of minutes, you know, you start going, yeah. like, you know, that doesn't seem natural to me. And also, yeah. that is a record I have no interest in breaking. Like Donnie right. and Marie over there, they must have been like, you know, practicing since they were kids. Like, we're going to do this right. someday. <laughs> we're going to play the quiet game. This time you will hold the breath. Okay, I will hold the breath. You hold the breath. <laughs> yeah, it's that Soviet Atari. That's what that is. <laughs> Black Atari 2600. And, and also, like, if you've ever done planks, you know, the... The ab exercise, yes. exactly. Like, like a plank minute is worth like way more than like any other minute. Oh, that's like three minutes and fifteen seconds for sure, right there. There it is again. But like underwater, that must be like plank plus. Plank, yeah, it's like it's like a it's like half plank, half sit up. Plank plus sounds like a nineteen seventies cleaning detergent, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Hey, are your cabinets disgusting? <laughs> plank plus will help you get through clean. Who cleans cabinets, Mom? Shut up! I've been taking drugs all day! Okay, Mom, that's cool. Um, yeah. Shut up! I'm on speed! <laughs> yeah. I've been taking Milltowns, and I'm going to clean the roof with Plank Plus. What are you doing home from school anyway? Mom, it's 3.15. <laughs> oh! I've already right. had 3.15 martinis. <laughs> all right, moving on to the 16th. March the 16th, 1979. Heavy metal band Twisted Sister sells out the New York Palladium, which has a capacity of 3,500 people. They sell out the Palladium in New York before they even had a record out. As a matter of fact, they wouldn't have a record out for another three years. Were they a metal band in 79? Weren't they more like the New York Dolls, like sort of a glammy? Yeah, there's that crossover uh, in between glam and and metal. You know, they got classified as a metal band, but they definitely had the glam look going for them and all that. Um, Well, like they they ended up not dressing like they used to dress as women, right? When they played. Yes. That was the Twisted Sister, the sister part of Twisted Sister, right? And then when they became an MTV band, they sort of like. Yeah, maybe you just want to wear some spandex, and we'll change your makeup a little bit. Yeah, the, yeah, their their makeup was a little more like <laughs> Kiss, less like. The... Well, I mean, well, they still had like the the Mrs. Roper eyeshadow thing going for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was uh, it was a lot less feminine looking, shall we say? Right, right. Well, I mean, D. Snyder is about as feminine as a Mack truck. Yeah, I got to meet D. Snyder. He was. Uh, Did you? Yeah, he was doing an appearance at Spooky World whenever I worked there. And I worked right at the beginning of the house. At the time, I was playing um, Grandma. That was just the, the character's name was Grandma. And I had a walker that I used to refer to as the Walker of Justice. And I would do like, um, we called it the Grandma Olympics. I used to do handstands on it and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And then I did my shtick for D. Snyder. And he clapped and he goes, oh my God, that's amazing. And he walked off. And then I did something I normally don't do is I broke character. And I was yeah. like, I go, dude, you have been entertaining me my entire life, and now I get to entertain you. That is, that's awesome. Thank you. And he's like, yeah. nah, man. He gave me the thumbs up, and then he went to go hit on the girl with the huge boobs that was playing Elvira. <laughs> yeah. Uh, interesting guy, uh, D. Snyder, because I mean, he looked like the devil. Whenever the PMRC thing happened, 
the Parents Music Resource Center, they were holding meetings in Congress to find out whether records should be labeled or censored or whatever, which is right. a huge violation of that First Amendment of the Constitution. A lot of musicians like showed up to testify. Frank Zappa was there, John Denver was there, and they both showed up looking you know, very straight with the suits and the ties and everything like that. Dee yep. Snyder walks in with like a good three or four 400 pounds worth of hair <laughs> he definitely he definitely if he if he were to shave that off for cancer people they would have all he could have had a whole twisted sister fan club oh my god that guy's hair. hair was just enormous and then he had like a leather jacket and with a with like a jean jacket or a jean jacket vest over it or vice versa or whatever it was and they takes off the jacket and he was wearing a twisted sister concert shirt he showed up looking like d snyder hit that testimony at the PMRC is available on YouTube and it is so worth watching because he was so smart and so eloquent and just explained everything away and the best part is whatever he just took it to to Al Gore he gave Al Gore the business for sure it's one of the reasons that contributed to his poor showing I think in 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 the election in 2000 was people like you and I remember yeah I remembered not so hard at forgetting yeah Yeah, it's like I, re- I definitely remembered who his wife was, yeah. That was like a, a, a six-month window mm-hmm. where Twisted Sister was wicked famous because of MTV. That happened, too. <laughs> yeah. Like, their first, their, like, their big record came out. They had the video on, on, on MTV that was that had the guy that played Niedermeyer in uh, Animal House. And yep. they took we're, the language from Animal House, right? Yeah. Right. We're not going to take it. We're right. not going to take it. It's like a cartoon, and it was like cartoonish violence and all this sort of stuff. They were showing that video, like, every 45 minutes on MTV. So, yeah. When the PMRC started that, they're like, we have to get that guy here, Yeah, you know? And it was all about the violence of the song. And he's like, look, dude, this is like the cartoon violence. Also, I don't direct videos. (laughs) (laughs) Right after that, the next record came out. I think T. Snyder said something along the lines of, the worst thing that ever happened to our career was getting famous. Yeah. They they just, you know, imploded. And not only that, like, if you remember after Stay Hungry, I don't think it was the next album. I think the next album was called, like, Come Out and Play, I think it was. And, like, they did a cover of The Leader of the Pack. That was their last, that was their last album before they broke apart. Right. I think there was one more album called Love is for Suckers. Okay. But I might have the chronology, you know, the chronology mixed up. Right. Regardless, I remember. Well, and, yeah. Anyway, leader of the pack is worst song ever. Um, right. They had they, terrible. Yeah. Terrible song. They basically just recorded that so that they could make a funny video to go with it. Right. That sort of medium just blew them apart. Unfortunately, what's funny was remember Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Yeah, they like did the uh, cameo he has with the See No Evil. Yep. Video uh, and he's like burning hell. Driving. Yeah, burning hell. When uh, when Pee Wee's like riding through on his bike and he rides across the video the video shoot yep. and at that point people are already like who's that guy yeah what band is that again and that was like like <laughs> less than nine months after uh, Stay Hungry had had, had topped the charts so. right D Snyder God love him we'll talk about him briefly later but like Twisted Sister it's like almost like the Sex Pistols right. they came and went in such a short amount of time but they're remarkable people remember, people remember them we're still yeah. talking about them yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. They definitely had impact. Yeah. So what do you have for March the 17th? On March the 17th in 1953, uh, the U.S. government televises the detonation of a nuclear weapon called Operation Upshot Not Hole. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Operation Upshot Not Hole. I thought you were starting to, uh, I thought you were starting a fight with me for a second there. 
where they detonated a 16 kiloton nuclear weapon, atomic bomb at Yucca Flats, uh, on a, and it was a it was to simulate an airdrop, so it was detonated on a 300 foot tall tower. What made this unusual was that it was broadcast on television live. No, what made this unusual uh, is everything about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for the time, yeah. like 53 is the baby's not quite walking yet, but it's able to pick itself up by hanging on the couch or the table. Right. That's the that's the level of maturity that the nuclear weapons industry has. You know, where it's still like. Hey, there'll probably be no long-term effects from <laughs> being near one of these explosions. Yeah. Nah. But it was broadcast on TV. It was very scientifically put together. It was less propaganda than you'd think it would be for 1953. Although I'm sure that one of the reasons that it was put on was it was to terrify the North Koreans into coming to the, the table and saying like, okay, we'll, we'll have a ceasefire so you don't drop these all over North Korea. Because right. 53 is when the Korean conflict right. came to a, the, fi- the, the ceasefire started. Yeah, we saw what you did to the neighbors, right? Right, exactly. One of those like, don't make me do that to you. Yep. You know, um, and and uh, they must have scared the ever loving blue eyed Jesus out <laughs> of the the audience that was watching it at home. Now it was filmed in color, but it was probably broadcast in color. But most TVs in '53 were still black and white. Right. And what what made this one different than other descriptions of how nuclear weapons worked or how they were tested is this one showed the impact that it would have on a typical wooden residential structure, the people that were inside of it, cars, trucks, mailboxes. So they sort of built these rows of houses. They had rows of trees. They had telephone wires right. and all this other infrastructure stuff. And it just got friggin' leveled. So for, yeah. for reference, whenever you see the the famous video of the house just like exploding because it got hit with a nuclear blast, that's from that film. And also they kind of uh, made reference to it in Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. I never saw that. Whoa. You know the phrase, jump the shark? I do. Yeah. That has been sometimes replaced with the phrase, nuke the fridge. Because Uh, there is a scene in Crystal Skull where Indiana Jones stumbles across this Yucca Flat setup. And then the bomb's about to go off. So he hides inside of a refrigerator and survives the blast because of it. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so yes, jump the I'm shark glad i never watched this yeah hashtag nuke the fridge yeah nuke the fridge that was done over at yucca flats they actually made a yep. b movie one of my uh one of my favorite b movies the beast of yucca flats and tor johnson is yeah. in the, is in that one yep. what's really funny is they whenever whenever they recorded that movie they didn't record any audio so yeah. they they did all the uh the all post-production sound. All the yeah, all post-production sound. So whenever there's anyone talking, they're like facing away from the camera, or they'll like obscure their their mouth with their hand or a sandwich or something. Nice. It's really really funny to watch. Nice, nice. All that government land. Yep. The government just leased it out after that. Like ah, it's fine. You can use it for stuff. You know, <laughs> in the fifties. You don't even need a generator. You just plug the toaster right into the ground. Right, exactly. So what was the dominant type of film being made by Hollywood studio pictures in the 1950s? They are westerns, Yeah. right? Westerns and a lot of sort of biblical type epics and whatever. And one film where John Wayne plays Genghis Khan. Considered the worst movie in his uh, catalog and one of the worst movies ever made. But that was shot on the grounds around Yucca Flats and... Several people, including John Wayne, developed terminal cancer from exposure to radioactive fallout hmm. when making that film. Oh, wow. Uh, so ultimately, even a, a few years later, you know, assuming that people understood how Half-Lifing worked and where radioactive fallout fell, don't go make a movie about 
Genghis Khan at Yucca Flats Proving Grounds. That's what you get for racial appropriation, John. Right. <laughs> You're as Mongolian as I am. Right Hello, that. partner. I think we need to go and invade those Chinese. <laughs> you know. Let that be a lesson to you, Duke. Uh, moving on to on. March the 18th. All right, we're going back a little bit on this one. Ready? March the 18th, the year of our Lord, 1314, is the wow. end of the Knights Templar. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. No, hold on. Uh, Grandmaster of the Knights Templar, uh, Jacques de Molay, and other Templars yep. are burned at the stake, bringing to the end yep. of the order. <laughs> or so we're told. The Knights, Knights Templar are interesting. So they were like mercenaries. They're like an order of mercenaries that was hired by the Vatican to to escort pilgrims to the Holy Land. We're going to bring these pilgrims to the Holy uh, Land. We're going <laughs> to, you and me, partner, we're going to get them there. You know, my skin's tingling after touching <laughs> that sand. And, um, so not only did they did they collect money from governments and from the, the Vatican to provide services, taking people to the Holy Land, but they also charged the pilgrims too. So they made a lot of money yep. and they were really well organized. And if you have a lot of money and you're really well organized and you're international, you begin to become a threat to the power structure. Yes. And at the time, the power structure that was international or cross dynasty, I guess you want to describe it like, because again, the European nations were different things than they are now. Right. You had the Catholic church, you had the Holy Roman Empire. So they became like a threat to the Holy Roman Empire. Because they had money and they were and they were organized, so you know the same way you deal with anything that becomes a problem. You're like, hey, you know all those pilgrims that we paid to you guys to take care of? Yeah, well, we want all the money. And when they say no, <laughs> okay, and then they go, you're all witches. We're not witches. All you know you are, and that's the end of the Knights Templar. They all get rounded up and tortured, and they have a giant hunt through Europe where they give the old Inquisition treatment to these guys and they wipe them out. So. So it is said. Yeah, they are the gift that keeps on giving, you know, because like you're a bunch of satanic sodomites is what you are. And apparently they now run a pizza place in Washington, (laughs) D.C. Well, if I could if I could describe the further adventures of the Knights Templar (laughs) in the way that they need to be described or the voice that they should be described in. Oh, let me tell you, people, Knights Templar have become the Freemasons, the Freemasons and the Lizardmen, Lizardmen come from space and they're communists, they're Chinese communists, they come from space and they've come here with the Knights Templar to become Freemasons. And not only do they build walls and temples and, and they built their own power structure, but but a giant owl, a giant owl out of the woods of California. So <laughs> so they're, they're rumored to have become effectively gone underground and, and been hidden because they connections and they had money and that there are still millions of dollars in, in Templar treasure that's hidden or hidden or curated by different other organizations that are that are still tied to the Catholic Church in some places and, and are not in others, and that a lot of the iconography that was used in the Knights Templar was co-opted into what would become Freemasonry, and that if you know your Freemasonry history and the Knights Templar history, you can find stuff that identifies that in some of the buildings that are in like Freemason temples and other stuff that have been built. There's one in Scotland, I guess, that's full of all kinds of iconography. And weirdly enough, if you come to Salem, New Hampshire, and you go to America's Stonehenge, National Historic Place, yep. also one of the least exciting places to go to in New Hampshire. Uh, they have a they have a big rock there, and on this big rock from like 600 AD or something, there's a drawing of a Knights Templar, 
with the shield with the cross on it and everything and it's there it's, it was dug out of the ground there and it's been there for forever so there's some suggestion that probably hitching hitching rides with uh you know sort of eric the viking and, and others who who had to the north american continent um long before Christopher Columbus did, that they had spent time here and had built things here and then had gone back to Europe. And then they turned all the frogs gay is what they did. And then your friend and mine there, Dan Brown, wrote those books, you know, Angels and Demons and then the Da Vinci Code. Well, Angels and Demons more so than Da Vinci Code, but Angels and Demons dealt with like the Knights Templar stuff and and all that. And because it was written at like a sixth grade level... But dealt with some very, you know, um, you know, more cerebral subjects. Everybody all of a sudden thought they were big experts on conspiracy theories and and all that stuff. And um, yeah, <laughs> the same the same audience that followed that really fell into that stuff hard. Definitely, I think they they migrated from those books to kind of the coast to coast radio, and then to to uh, Monsignor uh, Alex Jones, and then finally to the QAnon, Cuckoo Bananas stuff. So. Yep. There's definitely a tie back to all of those things to the Knights Templar. So, no, it all ties back to Dan Brown. Writes, I, I blame you, Dan Brown and Tom Hanks and Ron Howard. May you all burn in the fires. <laughs> burn, burn, burn in the fires of the Knights Templar. Yep. Uh, also, there's a good run of like Portuguese-made horror movies from the 70s where the, Knights, the, the bodies of the Knights Templar come back to life and eat people. I so. love that sentence, right? Not even sentence, that series of words. Portuguese made horror movies from the 1970s. Yeah. I'm on it. Hey, if you were to take the burning bodies of all the Knights Templar and get yourself a big ass frying pan, I bet you you could make something delicious for breakfast. What do you what do you have for the 19th that I'm oddly alluding to? I am alluding to the 1994 March 19th, 1994 creation of the world's largest omelet. Mm. 1383 square feet. Made with 160,000 eggs in Yokohama, Japan. In Japan, where they make things big for no good reason. <laughs> I don't know what would lead someone to say like, hey, we, we've got some time on our hands. What can we do to make society better? I think we should make everybody breakfast. And we'll make everybody breakfast at one time and in one place on one day with 160,000 eggs. <laughs> and there's the world's largest omelet in Yokohama. I... I don't know if it was just scrambled eggs. Technically, that's not an omelet, right? No, that's, yeah. That, uh, no, I mean, an omelet, you have to fold that in a certain right, way. Right, you got to fold that guy. Right. They probably had to invent like a giant robot, like a Gundam robot, like <laughs> Eggtron. Eggtron. It like s- steps down, boom. Kind of has like a big spatula hand and a big, and then it flips the omelet. Ho! Oh! <laughs> And then there's like some crazy music in the background and a bunch of acrobats jump out of the robot and do stuff and 160,000 eggs. I, I, I can't even fathom that. I can't even make a one egg omelet. And like every single time it's like, okay, it's cooked and now I fold and I messed it up and now I'm having scrambled eggs. Uh, that whole omelet was eaten by Japanese competitive eater Takeru Kobayashi <laughs> on his way uh, to a hot dog eating contest. That omelet also gave birth to the world's largest pepper shaker. Yes. And the world's... I, I think if you put that many eggs in one place, you just get it like, don't you summon a cholesterol demon at that point? You know? <laughs> Stop all of your hearts. It's the cholesterol demon. Run! You know? No! no! People are throwing handfuls of Lipitor at it. It's the only thing that works! <laughs> you nice. need more alkaline in your diet. <laughs> you can't eat that many eggs at once. Uh, so moving on to the 20th, we have... 
this is only a couple of years ago. March the 20th, 2015, there was a solar eclipse, a supermoon, and the spring equinox all on the same day. Yep. Yeah, I was super excited about it, too. I was Because, I mean, how often do you get to see a supermoon, right? Right. And I went out and I went to look at it. And, of course, it was raining and I was, like, supermoon. <laughs> More like super disappointed. <laughs> I, we had a nice day here for the uh, eclipse that day. I remember all yep. of us, we made uh, those pinhole cameras to go look at a little blurry dot inside of a cereal box, which was right. kind of fun. But there were a whole bunch of us at the park here in town with our respective offspring. And we're like, look at how exciting this is. Don't look directly at the sun. And yet. That was that time that uh, former President Donald Trump. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't look directly at the sun, Mr. President. What? And he just stares at it like, huh? Eclipse, huh? Yeah, that that particular one with uh, with Trump. I remember the the because I was trying to look at it through my phone. It was so the sun was so high in the sky. Yeah. Because it was like noontime and all that. That yeah, you couldn't even make out that it was a really good uh, eclipse. Not where I was anyway. Yeah, we, it was really easy to see here, and we had like special glasses, and we all made pinhole cameras and stuff. It was really fun. Yeah. We didn't get rain. We got rain at night, so we didn't see the supermoon, but. We definitely right. saw the. Oh, uh, the one I'm talking about that was like too high in the sky. That was the one that uh, Trump was staring at. But 2015, right. yeah, it was overcast down here. I didn't see anything. Uh, I, I I couldn't even stand eggs up on their end like you're supposed to be able to do with <laughs> a, a equinox. Or, yes, or a broom, right? You can stand a broom up. That's the other one. Yeah, that's the equinox. You can stand eggs up on their end. You know, you why, can do that the rest you, of the year too. Yeah, I know, but I just don't try. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right. Let's go on to the 21st. What do you got? All right, the 21st. You know, it's funny you bring up, like, convergences of events, right? And we've been talking about numbers all day, so so this one will tie all of these things together into one fell swoop. Uh, March 21st of 1844 was the original date predicted by a guy named William Miller of Massachusetts that would herald the return of Jesus and bring about the end of the world. And he convinced more than a few hundred people to sell all their stuff and join him atop a mountain to wait for the end times. The way he calculated this was like any other 1840s, moderately less than fully educated guy does. He says, well, there's a lot of numbers in the Bible, King James Version of the Bible, so I'll use that and I'll just count my way forwards and that'll tell me. If this is year zero, the beginning, then here over here at the end, it'll tell me what year it is if I just go through and I count up all these people and their begats and the dates and all these things and, and I'll know where where the end is. Holy crap, the end is two years from now. This is a couple years back. Yep. So he starts preaching, hey, the end of the world is coming. Here's the Bible. It says so here, blah, blah. I did all this math. I carried the one. There's a square root in there somewhere, and I used a decimal point, and Jeff doesn't understand binary, Chism- uh, not binary math, but base 12. It doesn't matter. And, uh, Chism bop. Chism bop. <laughs> and, and here you go, like 1844 guaranteed. So it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know what? Let me go back and check my math because you know how it is with math. And he goes back and he's like, oh, you know what? I was wrong. I, I was off by a couple of years. It'll be a couple more years. And then it'll really be the end. So these people, I guess they don't have much to do in 1844. They wait around for another couple of years and they go up to the top of the mountain with them again. And again, the world does not end. At this point, Millerites sort of fade away. But it's not like you end up with 200 people who are like, this guy's full of shit. And he just <laughs> got me to sell my farm that I've had and you know, one generation here in this country and, and now I'm destitute or, you know, whatever. And I've given all my stuff away so that I could, I could go to heaven. I got a, I got a couple of things I want to, I want to bring up. 
Okay. One, uh, we talked about something like this a couple of months ago, I think, talking about the end of the world because it's fun. Boy, how arrogant is the human race that everyone thinks that they're going to be the ones that's going to be here for the end of the world because everybody thinks they're there. It's, uh, it's them, you know? Right. But at any rate, everybody sells all their stuff. It's like, why don't you just leave it there just in case it goes bad? If you sell it, now you have all this money, and I guess you could buy more stuff. But just leave it. Don't sell anything. And right. Just leave it there. You know, it's hedge your bet, man. It's like yeah, it's like uh, it's it's like Pascal's wager, right? Pascal's wager is like you might as well believe in God because what if you're wrong? Right. Right. So <laughs> you might as well. You might as well. You got nothing to lose. It's a it's a win win. Five hundred on red. Five hundred on black. Yeah. But it's like so. What I'm getting at is like you end up with a couple hundred people who've like been now they've been down this stupid road with you twice. Yep. And they're, and they're looking at you and you're like, well, you swallow like, well, maybe maybe it's on Australian time and we have to wait till tomorrow <laughs> and whatever. And then it doesn't happen. And they don't just like tar and feather that guy or leave him on top of the mountain with him, a handful of his of his own teeth and leave and be like, screw this stuff. I'm, I'm out of here. What they do is they like go like, well, maybe maybe he made some other mathematical errors and and his proof of concept is right. But he just didn't do the work the right way, and he missed something. So they're like scions of the Millerite church even around today mm -hmm. who are still like can't wait for the end of the world to happen. Seventh-day Adventist is like yeah. one, and, and and they all spring from this, this same guy. There's a couple of things here, too. It's like uh, our, our good friend Miller over here obviously didn't have access to the Internet because while you were talking, I did a couple of just like real quick searches. Yes. Uh, one... <laughs> In, uh, in October of 1582, Pope Gregory XIII introduced what we now call the Gregorian calendar. And because of, and because of that, uh, there's a couple of weeks that are actually missing from history because, uh, you know, just for quick numbers, it was October the 1st. Eh, all of a sudden, it's October the 15th. We're calling it the 15th just to straighten out the calendar a little bit. So, like, October the 1st through October the 15th of 18, uh, 1582 don't exist, you know, right. because they had they were straightening out the calendar. That's right. one. Well, that's, that's one thing. Right. The other thing is the beginning of the year hasn't always been January the first. It was originally around the equinox or April the first. Around there, they right. pushed it to January the first because it's one week after Christmas, and that would be. Are you ready for this? That would be the day of Jesus's circumcision. Okay, okay. that's that. Yeah, that's fine. Um, known as unhappy day. Yeah, so that's why that's why uh, the first of the year is January the first because happy circumcision, Jesus. It used to be April the first, and whenever they switched it over to January the first, some people were just like diehards, like nope, first of the year is April the first. I'm not changing, and they used to refer to those people as. Are you ready? The April, April Fools, Fools. Yep. and they used to play jokes on them, and that's how that tradition started. Oh, that's why they kept saying Happy New Year to them. Happy New Year to you. Ha ha! Ha, it's not. <laughs> Your calendar's old and dumb. Go stand on the, on the hill with Miller, you idiot. Like, the way that this grift is supposed to work is you convince all these people to sell all their stuff and give it to you, and then you say, I'll meet you on top of that mountain on March 21st of 1844, and then you don't. They all go there. But you take a boat and you go somewhere where they'll never find you with all their money. That's how this grift works. But what happens is people eventually start to believe the old, the bullshit that comes out of their mouth. Yep. And they're like, the world really is going to end. And then they go to the top of the mountain and they're like, see, 
here we are. This is our greatest moment. And and then it, it doesn't end, and they're like, oh, damn it. Forgot the end of the plot. I forgot the way I <laughs> There's one more step in this recipe, and I forgot to do it. I was um, really, really just quickly looking up to see if the guy who founded eBay was a descendant of this Miller person, because that would have been great. <laughs> that would have been the best conspiracy theory ever, but no, no, it's not. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, yeah, keep in mind, like, when we're talking about folks like this, right, they're primarily, in fact, I'm going to guarantee they're all white people who believe that the King James Bible was written by Jesus in English with a typewriter that he invented. Yeah. In know, America. In America, and that Jesus looks kind of like they do with a longer beard and no pants. That's sort of their mental model for it. So, a dreamy abs. To to not to <laughs> not have that sort of historical, cultural, or other awareness is does not surprise me for 1844. It doesn't surprise me for 2021 either, but <laughs> it surprises me less for 1844. You know, and, and and guys like this Miller dude come up every now and then. You'll see like the Rapture dudes who get thousands of people to follow him, and then oh. You know, unless they're going to pull like a David Koresh and, well, we're going to make it the end of the world for all of us. It, it doesn't happen, you know, and then they end up on TV like, oh. yeah, Apple White's yeah. another one. Right. All right. Let's move on to the celebrity birthdays. We'll right. just quickly mention uh, this one because we spent a lot of time with him earlier in the show. March the 15th of 1953, your friend of mine, Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister is born. And. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think we uh, I think we said just about everything there is to say about the guy. All 17 feet of him was born on the same day. Awesome. Awesome guy. We love you, D. Moving on. Right. Next up. Uh, Mar- March 16, 1936, George C. Parker is born. Do you know who George C. Parker was? Uh, well, I know you do because we talked about this before the show, but for our well, audience out there. Let's, let's uh, make believe that I don't. No. Okay. So who's this guy? So whenever you hear the phrase, uh, hey, you want to buy some shares of the Brooklyn Bridge? They're referencing George C. Parker. He's a con man who sold the Brooklyn Bridge, Grant's Tomb, the Statue of Liberty, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, among other things, to incredibly gullible people with money. Ran that grift all over New York and and surrounding areas in the United States for years and years until he finally was convicted of fraud and sentenced to life at Sing Sing, (laughs) and he where he eventually died. Uh, He died there. The funny thing is, is like that. From what it says, is that you know sometimes two times a week. The New York police had to go and prevent somebody from putting a toll booth up on the Brooklyn Bridge because they had bought the Brooklyn Bridge from George Parker and were like, I'm going to recoup my money somehow, so I'm going to do it by putting a toll booth up. And then the cops would have to come and like shoo them away and and they had been taken advantage of. That is absolutely hilarious. That dude must must have had a rap on him though. He must have been like smoother. He must have been smoother than Silk. Yeah, that, that guy was smoother than a Teflon turd. Yeah, that guy is charming. So. <laughs> thank God! Thank God he wasn't born around the same time as Emperor Norton, uh, first emperor of the United States, protector of Mexico. Think of what they could have done together. Oh yeah! Moving on to March the seventeenth, nineteen sixty-seven, former singer of the Smashing Pumpkins and current Booker and owner of TNA Impact Wrestling, Billy Corgan. What an interesting career path! Des- despite all his rage, he's still just a rat in a cage match. Uh, <laughs> um, that song has always cracked me up because Billy Corgan, if there's, if there's one word that I can use to describe him, menacing would not be one of them. Despite all my rage, I'm still just a rat in a cage. I'll tell you, nothing is more hilarious to me than picturing a Billy Corgan hissy fit. <laughs> I like that song. I like 
Do I you? bought a third of that whole record. Yeah, I, I begged for that record for as a gift for you. Oh, really? Like yeah. 25 I was... bucks when it came out. And I got it, and I was like, finally! And it's like a third of a really good record with another third of a kind of okay B-sides record, and then yeah. a third of just utter, what is this? Why is this on here? This is terrible. But I liked their first record, too. Was it Gish? They were just starting to be a called. thing when I when I was a DJ, and I always I always gravitated towards them. Uh, of the bands that came from that particular area of the country, they were the ones that I liked. Whenever they were super popular, I wasn't really into them. I always thought the guy sounded like a cicada bug when he was singing. <laughs> it was like. <laughs> I can only listen to this record once every 17 years. Uh, um, <laughs> oddly enough, uh, though, uh, his other is like post Pumpkins band Swan. I liked them better. Pretty much the exact same band with just different people in it, except for him. That was like, I think they were called Swan for legal reasons. And <laughs> yeah. That was it. Because the rest of his band wanted to murder him. By that. <laughs> so, all right, moving on. Next up. March 18th, 1970, uh, character actor Michael Rappaport. So you may recognize him from a series of recent videos where he narrates like two mooses fighting in front of a house. Hey, Ma! These two mooses! He's intense. <laughs> he's he's intense. He's funny as, funny as all get out. Definitely has that sort of like South Boston. I don't know. I don't know where he's from. He usually plays characters that are like New York or Boston, urban. Oh, uh, he's from Manhattan. Oh, okay, from Manhattan. Yep. So, so definitely has that that regionally specific accent, yep. And plays characters that tend to have that regionally specific accent as part of their character. I really liked him in Copland, where he played the the cop who shot the kid who had the steering wheel lock and thought it was like a shotgun, and that sort of sets that whole plot of that movie in motion. Mm-hmm. He, again, he's really funny on on TikTok and Twitter right now. Yeah, I know him from a Netflix show called Atypical. Where he plays the father, uh, you know, the, or the family patriarch or whatever, to um, uh, a family with an autistic child or Asperger's syndrome or, or what have you. That, that's a really good show, and and he plays he plays a great dad. And the the dad character that he plays is not all that different from like his real life character, how Michael Rappaport is, where he's kind of funny, but he's also terrifyingly angry. When Rapp- yeah. when Rappaport starts going off on his rants, especially some of the ones he did against Donald Trump, it was like I, I I'm afraid of this man. Please don't come through this screen and hit me. <laughs> he definitely does give off that I will murder you vibe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will murder you. Yep. Yes. Uh, another person that can give off a I will kill you vibe. A matter of fact, he is the master of making the Bruce Willis face. Born on March the 19th, 1955, Bruce Willis. Oh, hey, look yep. at that. You ever notice that? Like in like every movie that Bruce Willis is in, he will give somebody that, like, just that look. Like, I'm going to kill you kind of a look. And you believe it, too. Yes. Yep. Do you have a particular favorite Bruce Willis, or or movie where Bruce Willis is an actor, I like he he's good in some character roles. Yeah, too. I mean we can all we can all go back to the Die Hard series, but you know what's an underrated movie that he was in was a comedy because he's a real good comedic actor. I really liked him. There was a movie called Blind Date. Do you remember that with Kim Basinger? Yep. Yeah, with Kim and Basinger, John yeah. Larroquette. That was like wasn't that his very first? I think that that might have been his first uh, feature length. Yeah. Yeah, he was really, really, really funny in that movie. Don't get her drunk. Yeah. 
Bruce Willis will also inevitably end up in the worst song ever segment because in the in the in the eighties he put out an album called The Return of Bruno, which was like a bunch of like nineteen fifties and sixties kind of like soul classics, and it's kind of like Bruce. What on earth were you thinking? But whatever. Well, he was thinking he wanted some of that sweet, sweet Don Johnson oh, right. money. Which remember when Don Johnson put out his atrocious heartbeat, ear destroying garbage record, a heartbeat. Yeah, to capitalize on his success on uh, on uh, Miami Vice. Well, this is the same thing. Like he put that record out when he was still doing Moonlight. Yeah, it was the Battle of the Unshaven Men. <laughs> battle, battle of the. All right. Yes. Next up, March twentieth, nineteen fifty-seven. Teresa Russell, daughter of weird-ass director Ken Russell, is born. She ends up becoming a really popular actress, mm-hmm. mostly in, again, weird art house films that her dad directed, but she's a really good actress when you bump into her and stuff. Yeah. Probably best known for being in Black Widow and Razor's Edge. She also did voices for the Italian movie Tenebre when it was released in the United States with an American dub. Definitely has her hands in uh, a whole bunch of films that are that you may not recognize that you're watching a film with her in it until you see her. She also did one film with her father directing called Whore, <laughs> where he was directing her as a street walking prostitute, which just strange adds to the strangeness of Ken Russell as a director. Uh, one, of, one of the more visible roles or, or somebody that's, you know, more generation uh, millennial or whatever, where you might recognize her from. She played the Sandman's wife in Spider-Man three. Oh yeah, that's yep. right. Yes. So, Hey, happy birthday. And, hey, happy and wrapping up the birthdays, March 21st, 1904, a man by the name of Forrest Edward Mars. And we will love you forever, Mr. Mars, because you invented the M&Ms. Mm. Yeah. M&Ms, interesting story to them. They were invented for soldiers. They trade them off like, please don't kill me. <laughs> I have M&Ms. Oh, look, they're peanuts. All right, let's talk. Yeah. Super good. Like, I have I have this little bag, but there are more bags where these came from. We can negotiate. Don't yeah. Run me through with a bayonet. Uh, no, they were actually, they were invented uh, for soldiers because. Wait, uh, I know. To throw at the enemy because they're hard. They were invented for soldiers. No. <laughs> they, <laughs> they were invented for soldiers uh, because, like I said at the top of the show, melts in your mouth and not in your hand. That way, their ah. their trigger figures would not get all sticky. As a matter of fact, that when they first came out, they were only available to soldiers. During World War II, whenever like the whole world was rationed off, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, they could only get uh, they were only available to soldiers. I guess that makes sense. The last thing you want to be doing is like, oh my god, this friggin' Hershey bar was so good. I got it's all over my fingers, and oh my god, I've got to shoot. Just a soldier like munching away on our on like a a Hershey bar like like the little girl from Hereditary just like all smushed all over my yeah. This is we're, we're from the Chocolate Battalion. Yep. <laughs> my my brother was actually military. Uh, he never you know he never got deployed or anything like that. But he used to whenever he first got involved in the military, he used to love all the cadence songs, and he would like sing them around the house. And it's like I don't know why you like these so much. To me, they just sound like. The worst song ever. <laughs> Jeff, the world the world needs a love song. What do we have? What do we have this week? Oh, uh, yeah. So, uh, follow me, will, will you, back the halcyon years of 1991. This is right about the time that the whole musical landscape in the United States is going to change. 
the extinction level event is coming. <laughs> the, it hasn't arrived yet. The the, the meteor but, of Nirvana <laughs> is about to smash into the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs can see it in the sky, but they don't know where it's going to hit. Dinosaurs of the hair metal bands. Yeah. So what do we got? So uh, at that time, there were pro- approximately f- per capita uh, one hair metal band for every three people mm-hmm. in the United States. One of these hair metal bands was uh, originally a sort of a thrashy or speedy jam band yep. called Mr. Big, put together by the guitarist and the, the bass player, Billy Sheehan, the bass player who just left David Lee Ross band. Right. And they were looking to sort of do that sort of virtuoso guitar thing. Then yeah. they brought in... The, the guitar player, Paul Gilbert, was a virtuoso yeah. guitar player. He came over from a band called Razor X. Right. Okay, yes, that's right. And he was also in, uh, in Pelletary, which is another, just another one of those bands that's just... You know, yep. super fast, yeah. super shredding guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. Where that's the dominant part of the music that yeah. you know. Like the songs, I don't know what the songs are. Nobody cares what the lyrics are, but that's what you're listening for, right? You're listening for that kind of mm-hmm. super fast, shreddy, virtuoso guitar playing. Two things. Uh, one, yes. I've, I've noticed that we haven't mentioned what song we're talking about yet. And two, well, we'll get there. And two, we're going to play the clip. So, what song are we talking about? All right. We're talking about the, ugh, the nutless white boy soulless ballad called to be with you which sounds like a b-side from an extreme record and extreme itself is pretty much an, a, a b-side to an extreme record hold on let's play the clip So, yeah, and, and, and here's the conversation to be had right here. This band, Mr. Big, had this virtuoso guitar player, uh, uh, Paul Gilbert, and then uh, Billy Sheen that you know that got pulled in from the David Lee Roth band who played the bass guitar like he was... Like a lead guitar. Like a lead like guitar, a lead. yeah. Yep, he did a lot of that tappy bass, like but right. Eddie Van Halen-style tappy bass, so it's like all the way up right. and down the neck. and Yep. And then, the, you know, the singer had this kind of like, I, you just said you didn't like his voice. I did. I actually thought he was a good singer. And, and he was a, a charismatic frontman too. The only problem is, is that this song, this this boiling saucepan of vomit is, yeah. that's their legacy. Uh, go ahead. Right. right now. Come on, Jeff. Name me another Mr. Big song. Right. Okay. The only other thing that came to the top of my head was, I remember their first single because I went out and I bought their first album. The song was called "Addicted to That Rush," and I saw them yep. and I saw them open up for Rush uh, on the Presto tour. Yep. But other than that, Mr. Big, you can't name another song by them. I think they did a cover of "Ooh, Baby, It's a Wild World," but like again, right. that's like this nutless, soulless. No wonder Nirvana took you to bitch school. Look at you. Well, I, I think too, and 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 their success was limited because that song was super popular. Mm-hmm. When they toured the states, like that song is a song. Like, who's the audience for that song, Bill? Uh, girls. Girls. <laughs> and they yep. go see Mr. Big. They're like, oh my god, it's it's Mr. Big, and I can't wait to hear them too to be with you. And they hear that song, and then they're like, what the hell is the rest of this show? 
this isn't what I came here for. I came here for like love songs, and it's like, you know, like ninety minutes. Oh my god! <clears throat> Qualify that statement with girls of nineteen eighty six through nineteen ninety two are extinct. They don't exist anymore. Yeah, like no. Yeah, the the girl girls are much different than that little time frame. You know, in twenty twenty one. So you know, don't at me. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, no, I mean, like the thing is, like they were the demographic for this stuff. Like, yes. So, like, go down the line: Bon Jovi, Cinderella, Mr. Big, Striper. You know. But the thing was, is like that's that what it was, and and even though I love them, I blame Kiss because that was the the thing at that time was you had this band of like hard rocker dudes with the and all that trope of of the heavy metal guy, and then they write this sensitive. The sensitive ballad. Right. That, and you know, we can, I'm, we can, <laughs> I was going to say, we can thank that. In between, like, the, the three or four other songs that are, you know, basically, like, the sweet surrender and just all these other allegories for, you know, basically date rape. You know, now they've they got this sensitive, I love you kind of song, you know? And like I said, I blame Kiss because they did that with Beth. Yeah. Death, right. But I Which, can't come home, right? Which is not even a Kiss song. Nobody in the band wrote that song. Nobody in the right. band plays on that song. Uh, there's a a, a a small writing credit to Peter Chris for that song because he he was in a band that did a version of that song that had the lyric "Beck, I hear you're calling," and it, right. that was it. That was the only similarity. But anyway, getting back to Mr. Big. Unfortunately for Paul Gilbert, he spent all those years mastering his guitar and his legacy is going to be this song. This is what he's going to be remembered for. At least in the United States. However, yep. much like Cheap Trick, Mr. Big was ginormous in Japan. Yes. They had a humongous following in Japan and they still have, well, the couple of times that they've reformed a tour, they've reformed a tour to sell out stadiums in Japan because they're still gi- gigantic there. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was that was a, another trope or '80s metal music is if you were just minutely popular in America, you could sell out arenas over in Japan. Um, and sometimes they would pay you in a hundred and sixty thousand egg omelet. And other times they would pay you three hundred and fifteen dollars, <laughs> or, or whatever the currency happens to be in Japan. I don't, I don't, I don't yen know. is it yen? Yen. Okay, yeah, it's yen. 315 yen, which... Like, that's like it's like 60 cents. Yeah, exactly. Before we wrap up the show, I had that trivia question at the beginning. It's been so... True. So Harry S. Truman, 33rd president of the United States, his middle initial was S. What did it stand for? Well, oh. funny you should mention that. Because mm-hmm. as far as I know, it doesn't stand for anything. It's just an initial. It's not an initial. It's just the letter S. Yes. And it's like something to do with his grandparents. Like, yes. And his grandparents are named like Stephen Fartface and her Sherlock Holmes or something. But that's what the S is for, is for his, his grandparents. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yep. He, his, <laughs> yep his, I didn't even guess that. His, mid, his middle initial is S. And uh, his one grandfather was Anderson Ship Truman. And the other grandparent was Solomon Young. Oh, or, and the other one was Solomon Grundy. I was going to say, Solomon Young's a good name. It's a Solomon Young. Yeah. And that was uh, the Solomon's Temple with the Knights Templar. <laughs> what is it you do, Mr. Young? My name is Solomon Young, and I hunt down the remains of the Knights Temple. <laughs> and I hit them with my big stick. All right. Well, that is going to wrap up the show. 
We will see you next week, guys. Have, have a great week, everyone. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, right. everybody. Bye, guys. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.